Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Lars Ulrich. I think we were driven by still trying to be unconventional and, and still always how can we do things that are just more us in terms of how we sort of lived in our own world, how autonomous we were, how detached we were from conventional approaches. We had this whole this world that we created, that we lived in. James Hatfield. When I went there, it was so surreal and scary to me. I got scared. I didn't want to be there. Like I had a panic attack. Like I can't be here. There was a moment where it was too much for me. Kirk Hammett. When you're playing an open field, there's the end of the crowd. You know, that's the very back of the crowd. So that's the last person there. He's at the very back. And poor guy. Well, you guess what? In Moscow, you couldn't see that guy. You saw mist on the horizon. That's how, how far back it went. And, you know, half a million, one million, two million. Who knows? But it was a shitload of people. Probably the biggest mass of people I've ever seen. The Metallica Podcast. The Black Album. This is Side 5, Road Warriors. We were more and more becoming a live band. That's where we would shine. That's where... Uh, we felt the best. That's where we felt united with the world. That's where we got our fan base. So playing live was super important to us. The first time we played all those songs was 20 years later when we played the Black Album in its entirety at some <laughs> festival somewhere. I mean, obviously, in our history, we've never been one of those bands that would come out and, hey, we got a new album out and here's eight new songs in a row. <laughs> And so as, as the tour went on, there'd be more and more songs. I think what Inner Sandman was pretty early. I think that was kind of our opener. Sad But True was also pretty early. Maybe Rome. Rome Unforgiven. Yep. Unforgiven certainly wasn't till later because of the acoustic guitar. And Nothing Else Matters was way later. And then... Uh, a big pile of, like, the struggle within. I don't think we'd ever played the struggle within live until we did the Black Album. Precisely. Tour 20 years, something like that, right? So so there's a whole mixture. I think, you know, a deeper cut, like, through the never, maybe came in. Third time we came back to Europe on that tour or whatever. It's like, okay, you know, go deep or whatever. We are Thank you! Yeah, that Russian show, we did that Moscow show. Yeah, we, we did like a couple months in Europe. with It was us, ACDC, Motley Crue. Uh, who else? Um, Pantera. Black Crows. Black Crows were on Queensryche. Jeff Tate, ex-Queensryche. All the bands that were involved 
Everybody got along well. It was just a, a wonderful sense of camaraderie. Hearing the roar of Metallica playing was a fantastic way to sort of end the evening, you know? <laughs> started their set with Inter Sandman and that sort of long, prolonged intro, you know, with the drums, and it's just very tribal, like a call to the tribes, musically speaking. It sounds like somebody going to war, going to battle, and it's very exciting. <laughs> And then we started headlining and doing our own thing in America, in the arenas. Somebody had the idea of doing an evening with rather than an opening act. And we had a movie and we did live from the dressing room and all this. And we played kind of a long stage set up at one end. And, and there was a whole bunch of shenanigans and a whole new uh, effort made to get closer to the fans and try to do our own thing. Ross Halfin. Photographer. I used to be great to their fan base, particularly Lars. I mean, Lars, when you meet him at a meet and greet, you come away thinking that he's your best friend. I mean, you really do. Lars has the ability of making someone feel that, and that is a great thing. The only person I ever met as a fan that did that to me was Keith Moon. If Lars is stopped for an autograph or pictures, he always says yes, which is how it should be. Big Mick Hughes, front of house engineer. I really do like their fans. In the early days when we did the groundwork to this, the band would stay and sign autographs. Even after the gig, we would load out the gear and the band would literally still be there after we'd finished loading the trucks. So by the time we loaded the trucks and we were ready to roll to the next gig, the band would still be there meeting the kids. It was one-on-one -on -one conversations. I think we were driven by still trying to be unconventional and, and still always, how can we do things that are just more us? And here we were in the spirit of the Grateful Dead. You know, I think Cliff Bernstein always felt that there were certain similarities between us, obviously not musically between us and the dead, but in terms of, of how we sort of lived in our own world, how autonomous we were, how detached we were from the conventional approaches, kind of like the dead, that we had this whole this world that we created, that we lived in, that our fans, just there was a different connection. Cliff Bernstein, Metallica manager, co-founder, Q Prime Artist Management. The dead would encourage their audience to come around to the live shows. You know, there was a taper section. They were a live band, not dependent on radio hits. I think with Lars, what I was saying is, let's cultivate an audience in the way the dead did, so that if we never have a radio hit, we'll still get millions of people to come to your shows, to travel long distances to see your shows, You'll play lots of different songs. You got long songs, you got obscure songs, 
and you got the ones that the fans are generally familiar with. We're going to let people tape. We're going to let people trade cassettes. Thank you so much, man. We'll see you around soon, I hope. I hope you had a good time these couple nights. Because we fucking did, man. See ya! Thank you from Metallica. See ya. I know we talked about the stage itself, the snake pit, and Peter Mensch drawing it on a napkin saying, hey, Stonehenge, here we go. Tony Smith. Tour manager. The general idea of the Snake Pit, they had the diamond-shaped stage. And I believe it was the manager, Peter Mensch, who came up with the original thought about having the hollowed-out piece in the section. Well, OK, we will make that a special area. OK, we'll put special people in there. And then it became fairly apparent, you know, that is right there with the band on stage. It, it, it's a living, breathing experience. People who want to be there and who would appreciate being there, ardent fans, they need to be in there. So we kind of changed it around a little bit. We would find fans one way or another who we could tell would, would delight in the experience. And the band would feed off their energy uh, and vice versa. It became very much a, a part of the show. When I think back to that tour, it was us touring around the world with this ginormous diamond-shaped stage. Uh, we had the, the snake pit in the middle there. We would sit 30 minutes before each show and, hey, from the dressing room, we'll be out there to kick your ass in 30 minutes. And then they'd come in and film us in the dressing room while shirtless and flexing or whatever the fuck was going on. And, and, and that was always hilarious. And then we'll be out there in 15 minutes and, and then we'd play. Adam Dubin documentary filmmaker. They would open to Enter Sandman, which was, of course, a new song at the time. The way the lights would come up and they'd be there and you'd, you'd hear the opening riffs and they would like be there on that insane stage with the snake pit in it and everything. It was such a powerful image and you would never forget that staging. Lena Dawes, music journalist. They really made a conscious effort to connect with the audience because the audience was maybe five feet away with that barrier. Lars in particular was like running around in circles. He was like jumping up like he usually does. They were just super energetic. One drum kit on either side of the stage, guys were running around and we were playing 360 and, and it was, Again, just this kind of continued effort of trying to do our own thing. When I think of that tour, there was a lot of that, just out with the conventional wisdoms and, and trying to, to do different things. Some of the songs definitely were a little more challenging. Uh, oh, we're going to play The Unforgiven live and the thing with the acoustic guitar, and then you had an, another guitar on you. <laughs> there were, a lot of things and I mean no we didn't even circle around and nothing else matters till I think a couple years into the tour how we're gonna do that and I remember James sitting on one of the steps on the snake pit and kind of doing it
Jason Newstead, Metallica bassist from 1986 to 2001. When we played it live, I think that was the how low can you go? How much air can you actually move in front of these thousands of people? Make them just go, holy fuck, like that. Take their feet out from underneath them. Everything was just trying to figure it all out as we were growing into just a different thing that just getting away from that thing that wasn't justice for all and all that overindulgence, self-indulgence, and trying to get into a more kind of communal spirit and involve the audience. There yeah. was the whole, there was the seek and destroy thing where you got a cordless mic. I was like, wow, he's got a cordless mic. He's walking around in the arena or down in the barriers, getting fans to shout, seek and destroy. Let me get rid of this guitar and fucking come out there and breathe. You guys are fucking, uh, you got it already, huh? Certain, yeah! I think you guys are nuts up there, man. <laughs> Certain, This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, Side 5 continues. And then we end up in Russia and we're playing in front of no one knows how many people there were and we had no clue what we had just walked into really to this day we still don't have a definitive number of how many people were there at one point toward the end of our set i tried to find tried to count them well no i tried to find <laughs> when because, you know, when you're, you're playing an open field, there's the end of the crowd. That's the very back of the crowd. That's the last person there. He's at the very back. And poor guy. 
guess what? In Moscow, you couldn't see that guy. You saw mist on the horizon and people underneath that mist. And it was still going back. That's how far back it went. And what, uh, half a million, one million, two million? Who knows? But it was a shitload of people. Probably the biggest mass of people I've ever seen. But it was a, more of a historical moment than we had realized. Literally watching people go from communist to, uh, you know, feeling freedom, complete freedom. People in the front row who were part of the military, who was the security, just seeing how many people behind them were having so much fun and just slowly taking off their uniform and like uh, transforming into a fan. I got to see that and how cool that was. I don't know what happened to that person afterwards. <laughs> if he was taken off to Siberia, I have no clue. But there was some pretty intense moments happening that they didn't understand what music could do to people on the inside and how it expressed itself on the outside. There were so many different attitudes happening right then. That mentality of, we need to control the country. We need to control this crowd. We need to control that false sense of control and it escalating more and more, freer they felt. It was scary. It must have been really scary for the people who had been raised that way of, I feel safe because everything's under control. But stuff was just, music was happening. And I felt at the moment that we were just playing another show. And until all that stuff started happening, we didn't know. We really didn't know. But that was a, a great way of spreading the message of music is freeing and you should be able to express it. And it doesn't really hurt people. <laughs> Trying to stop that freedom does hurt people. But yeah, a huge, huge, huge moment for us. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty crazy. I mean, to see firsthand when we had gone out there, there was such an initial rush of enthusiasm and the more that the audience was getting into it, and like James says, the more they felt like like uh, liberated in the moment and free, it seemed like the more the military were getting angry. <laughs> and it was interesting because on one side, you could see this blossoming, you know, of like a new attitude, you know, a new sort of like uh, hope and basically hope for the future. And at the other side of it, you saw the military, and they felt threatened. It was one of the largest gatherings of people that Moscow had had in a long, long time. And I think what had happened was people weren't used to it on either side. The military, they were just doing what they knew. And what they saw was the crowd just getting really into it and really passionate about that. At that point, seeing the audience being so passionate, that was a line that the military had never seen large audiences like that cross. I mean, it was interesting to see the military being a part of it. 
Yeah. And kind yeah. of uh, and, like yeah. James is saying Absolutely. that the military, you know, by the time there was a real conflict. 75 minutes later, yeah. you know, the military were throwing their hats around yeah. and jumping yeah. around and loosening up themselves. I mean, yeah. obviously it was an incredible time of transition. On one side, when people go, what's the craziest show you've ever played? That moment, and I think both James and Kirk were alluding to, you know, it was this peculiar mixture of it was just another show. And at the same time, it was a holy fuck moment because the incredible footage that Wayne Isham and his crew captured, these shots with these helicopters and these military guys and them taking off their, their hats and throwing themselves into it. Wayne Isham, filmmaker. Remember how we got the helicopter? Yeah. Yeah, a uh, good friend of ours, he got tight with the guys in the Russian military. We paid them money including vodka. He had a couple of shots with him and he went up handheld shooting out of this helicopter and they're getting lower and lower and they're getting these great shots, but you can see how it started up pretty high. And then during, I think, Sandman, you can see him way off in the distance there, getting closer and closer. Yeah. Kurt Marvis, producer. Yeah, that was just a military helicopter that one of our guys kind of basically hijacked and exactly. gave him some money and been booze. And they said, okay, let's take the door off and let's go. And they're into it. So, yeah, the helicopter was an exciting moment that we had. I remember Lars talking about how, at that time, Russia was still, like, you know, the penultimate show that they had done. It was just because it was that pent-up energy and intensity and almost violence that had occurred before it. And then when they came on and started playing Sandman, it just... It just exploded. It was a celebration like I've never seen before. Yeah, it was a celebration of freedom. So it wasn't the first time behind the Iron Curtain, as it was called at the time. But you also just got to remember that coming out of the Reagan years and the first Bush year, you know, Russia was the enemy. It, it, it was this whole thing about the antithesis to America was Russia. And here we were and we're in Russia for the first time. And, you know, we're walking around the Red Square. And what are we doing here? This is so cool. And then you got Ross Health in there taking, you know, line up against this wall and line up against, you know, this. And so it was a very surreal sort of 72 hours. Well, it was still very communist. It had slightly changed, but it was still communist Russia. The history of me as an American, <laughs> Russians were the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> Everything bad that was on this planet was there <laughs> or, or because of that. When I went there, I recall that we all went out to take some photos at the Red Square and it was at night and it was so surreal and scary to me. I got scared. I didn't want to be there. Like I had a panic attack. Like I can't be here. I have to go into the vehicle again. And then I remember Ross coaxing me back out. Let's get a few photos. And there was a moment where it was too much for me. What you don't see in the pictures I took in Red Square, because I made it extra dark, is that we were surrounded by police and KGB watching us. I wouldn't say we were scared, but we were certainly felt alienated. You know, Russia, as much as it was sort of open, it kind of wasn't. We had these strange guys who watched us a lot. And if you walked up the road, they sort of followed you everywhere. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. We are being followed then, you know, are these KGB guys, is that the deal? And they followed us around everywhere. Come on! And then the point for me, the switching over point, was when we played. It's like, 
these are just people, man. <laughs> these are just people, and they think differently. They've been raised differently. They think we're the enemy, and we're up here playing music, and it's a great connector, and it changed my attitude about it after we played, for sure. We turned up at this hotel, and it was the Russian People's Hotel, which was right by Red Square. Had 5,200 rooms and a north, south, east, and west entrance. If you actually went out and went into the wrong entrance, you could never find your way back to your room. The check-in at the hotel was like a, a train station, and you had to hand your passport over, which they promptly kept, which always felt a little strange, having your passport taken away from you. I don't even know if any of us knew what was up, down, and sideways. I remember at some point getting like a Heineken. I was like, oh my God, a Heineken. It's got the same logo as it does in the West. It was like, that was like crazy, you know. And, uh, okay, that'll be uh, $8 for each Heineken. Like, wait a minute. The, so that hotel suite is $4, and that bottle of Heineken is $8. Yep. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess we'll have four or whatever, you know. Like just, get, just like you know, it, it was the same that we, we went to a bar and paid dollars for a Heineken, but four bucks could get you meals for your family for the week. So mm. it was this weird mixture of all these different energies coming together, but it was a tremendous transitional energy in the air, and maybe it's exaggerated, but at the beginning of the show, it was certainly the first time an event like that had taken place. Just like any other fucking place. Except that t-shirt cost six weeks wages. And this copy of the copy of the cassette that he has of Master of Puppets cost six weeks wages. So every piece of whatever he has, that's how hard he's worked to be there with us at that moment. It's ridiculous how, how dedicated these kids were. There was a funny thing that I observed was that there was no telephones on the site. Other than, I believe, CNN lent us a briefcase satellite phone, which you opened up and you put the dish and the dish signed onto a satellite and then the satellite called you back at $11 a minute. Toilets were a pretty difficult thing as well. You certainly didn't want to have to go to the toilet there. You could trade anything for cigarettes and plastic reusable lighters, CDs. We had them turn up with a general's uniform to trade, I think, for a CD. They didn't even have a CD player. And then you think, well, where's the general? <laughs> Is he lying in some ditch somewhere? They've just had his uniform off him. And there was certainly, why were we there? I mean, it wasn't like somebody threw a dart at the map and then Moscow, okay, let's go to Moscow. We were there because the government was negotiating with the, the student unions and the opposition to to try to figure out how to negotiate some path forward against the, the resistance and the students and the uprisings and all that. And part of what they wanted was a rock show. You guys ready? Ready as a letter, B. Kill a baby to 
you know, we got told we'd been invited to go to Russia to reward the youngsters for not revolting against the government. It was like a bit of a thank you, here's a free concert on that airfield in Moscow. I remember standing on stage at the gig at like 10.30 at night and it was completely empty. There was no equipment at all. And all you could see was little fires on the horizon as the fans were starting to camp out overnight. And it was, they were getting closer and closer and closer. And I'm standing there with absolutely nothing and people are coming. Moscow, we're having some fun today. You fucking know it. All right, we're gonna do some shit off the album and Justice For All. Yeah, that one right there, you got it. So watch, uh, watch our buddy Jason over here. He'll show you what to do, so follow him, will ya? Harvey. And the people just started coming in. There's already a couple hundred on the field at 10 o'clock in the morning when they're already doing their thing. And people are just piling in. There's no fences or nothing. So trying to gauge it as we started playing, it could have went from 300,000 to 600,000 in 45 minutes or an hour as we're playing. But certainly there was no horizon, there was only heads. So when the night fell, there wasn't lights and paths and security things and go here to be safe and all that. It was just darkness and hundreds of thousands of people in the darkness. So the glow that was emanating off the stage lights and so forth like that, that did light up a certain amount of people. And you saw the ACDC, you know, see everybody glowing red, but the light still couldn't even reach to where the people were. It was fucking frightening, man. Was it like a week's notice all of a sudden? It's like, yeah. uh, you're going to go play in Russia. They asked us and ACDC if we would put an additional show on at the end of it and just truck everything over to Moscow. So we all went, not really knowing what was going to happen. And obviously it's become this incredible legendary couple of days. And it was for us, it was just a, a crazy cool mindfuck to be in this energy. And I don't remember that much about the gig itself other than I remember uh, hitting myself and bleeding all over the drum kit. Uh, and Ross has these pictures of me with like all the drum heads with like blood all over them. It was a crazy couple of days and I, I wouldn't, trade any of it my favorite picture of three of them all time was taken there and that was Lars had hit his finger on the snare drum and bled all over it and we all laughed at it you know like poor little him they were all rather the worst for wear on the flight and James is wearing Johnny Colt of the Black Crows the bass player's hat Kirk's got the old style video camera everyone used to video everything and Lars is holding it like a crystal glass with either wine or champagne and Kirk's kissing his finger. And that was like about 4 a.m. flying out of Moscow back to London. And that's my favorite picture of them. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. 
So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, Side 5 continues. On the subject of Day on the Green, I could distinctly remember that at that point, The Unforgiven was in the set, and we played it that night, and it was pretty amazing. We played with uh, Queensryche and Faith No More. And Soundgarden. And Soundgarden, yeah. Being a San Francisco-based band, uh, James and I did not grow up here, but Kirk and, and Cliff obviously did, Cliff Burton, and I know for them, the Day on the Green signifies an even greater achievement, maybe? I was aware of, of the mythology and the legend of the Day on the Green, but for those two guys growing up, and you know, when we played Day on the Green for the first time in 85 with the Scorpions, that was a monumental element, and then five, six years later, yeah. headlining Day in the Green. I can only imagine what that must have been like for yeah. you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Cliff, your guest list. building up to playing that first time in 1985, Day on the Green, I mean, we had a lot of conversations on, on just how great it was to just be a part of Day on the Green because both him and I had been going to... The, uh, these shows ever since we were 15, 16. And for people who don't know... The Day on the Green was a music festival that Bill Graham started putting out in 1974 at the Oakland Coliseum, and there was always like five or six bands on the bill. And back then in the 70s, if it was a, an outdoor show, it started at 10 a.m., which is like pretty unheard of now. We're going to uh, play some new crap now. You got the new one? Right on. This is a happy little one. I'm sure you fucking all dig. Sad, but true. One of the very first Day on the Greens I ever saw was the Eagles. And then all of a sudden, here we are, we're in a band, and we're playing Day on the Green. I mean, it is like, at that point, it was the ultimate. There wasn't anything better for a local musician. We couldn't believe it. It was monumental for us. We'll see you. Thank you. Jake Berry, production manager. We went all over the world with that tour. They've always delivered. You know, they've always delivered a show. There's no, I'm playing for an hour and a half and I'm getting off the stage. They've always delivered a production. They've always been innovative. Hi, folks. Good evening, Wembley and the world. 
First of all, the show must go on, and we'll start with an American band, three times Grammy Award winners. Please welcome Metallica. There was two, three years on the road of incredible highlights, but another kind of mindfuck day was the Freddie Mercury tribute event which took place I think some point in the middle of the next year 92 at Wembley Stadium Freddie had passed maybe a year before or whatever and the remaining members of Queen were putting a big tribute gig together and we were invited to play and we were still kind of outsiders and I just remember feeling like wow here we are part of this thing the Queen guys were there and lots of just totally great artists that we had admired for years. We got to play early in the afternoon. And that was, in all my memories of touring, it's one of the absolute pinnacle, like, special events. Metallica was feeling at that point that they had something to prove, that they were rising up into, the, into that next level of band where you're now there amongst icons. I felt that Metallica had something to prove because they had earned their way there and they wanted to be respected and they came out with their A-game and, and played. Mercury was in line with those kind of out-of-body experiences. And here we were in the most mainstream of events, playing with Queen, playing with Guns N' Roses, playing with all these A-list British artists that were there to celebrate Freddie Mercury. And not only were we there, we were there early in the day. We may have even been the first band on. Yeah. That's fine. But yeah. James got invited. James, our James, Metallica James, got invited to go up and sing with Queen. Yeah. Stone Cold That crazy. was like, oh my God, that was like, I remember you went down to rehearsal. You were down there singing with us. We were all, what was it like? Yeah. You know, it was like the first time. Tony Ioli was, was there. It was the first time that any of us were, were sort of like invited to be part of, whoa, and just feeling super proud. It's like, ah, cool, James is up there mm -hmm. singing with those guys. He kind of looks, he doesn't have his guitar on. It looks a little odd or whatever, <laughs> you know, but it was like fucking, yeah. That moment was, I mean, the rehearsal was cooler than, not cooler than the gig, but as impactful in my life, at just seeing those guys, but <laughs> to show up at that gig and then, you know, go out there and, okay, get in the tent, you know, here's the pre-tent tent where you, you wait and, you know, it was full of headsets and clipboards and, okay, who's next? Oh, who are you? You know, <laughs> which guy you're, are you? Contest you know? winner. Exactly. You know, 
well, you made it into the next tent. Okay, <laughs> go on to the next one. And uh, do you need the makeup and the this? It's like, no, 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 no. It's kind of interesting, you know, what James said, because it, we were the first band. Okay, and I remember we were shuffled along with people with headsets and clipboards. I remember I'm thinking, going, this is completely different how this is all run. This is so different from the way we run things. I mean, there's always a clear path and things are always obvious. We always know where our guitars are, where the stage is. People are expecting us, you know, and we're guided onto the stage ahead of time. We're always sitting there waiting for the show to start. But not that day, no. We were shuffled from spot to spot with our instruments. We didn't really know what was going on. There was way too many people backstage, like about 50 or 60 more people than uh, should have been. And I remember my tech handed me my guitar, and there was a person there with a clipboard and a headphone saying, are you in the band? Are you in the band? And I'm, I'm just like looking at this person like like shocked and then i hear james start the song and i hear you know i hear andrew sandman i literally had to like turn around jump over someone else's monitor from some other band, <laughs> weave through a back line of some other band, and then pop out in front of everything just in time for me to hit the, the wah pedal chord. unorganized. I couldn't believe it. I was so excited to be there in the first place. And I thought, oh my God, this is our, our, our one opportunity to like be amongst what Lars was describing, a different level of a musician and a different level of performer, entertainer, you know, musical legends. I was so excited, but then I thought, oh my God, I'm going to screw it up because I'm in the wrong place. I don't know where to, where to go. And Brian May is watching yeah, me. Yeah, I literally I ah. ran out there just in time, <laughs> and we all kind of like crashed down together, and we played the song, and it was surreal. The beauty of that moment. Yeah, it was Man. surreal because I looked out in the audience, and it was not our audience. It was like the general population of England. We'd all like to thank you and Queen for letting us play here. Thank you very much. We'll see you. We understood that a combination of some of these songs was how we got to satisfy our needs as artists, but also as the crowd. You know, how to build a set, how to vary it more than just what we were doing on the Justice Tour. You know, drumming certainly involves a lot of balance and really being in the moment and always paying attention to what the other guy's doing. You know, just always knowing where James is, always knowing where Kirk at that time, Jason, always having sort of, I'm in the back, the anchor. But it's just about being in tune to your surroundings and really just on it. And I think a lot of that certainly comes from growing up in a sports environment and just always being part of a team, 
you know, being aware of what your opponent is doing. So I'm happy that I had that schooling and grew up in, in those environments. Absolutely. You know, when I sit back there and we're firing on all our cylinders and metallic in a live situation works at its best, it's when we're all really connected to each other. Coming up on Site 6 of the Metallica Podcast Volume 1, The Black Album, Team Ugly. Not only were we on Team Ugly and they were on Team Beautiful, to put it that black and white, but the fact that we were on Team Ugly was what fueled us. And it felt it good. Set, it, it felt good to be apart. on Team Ugly. Yeah, because it set us apart. It was like we were representing all the people that, that were outcasts and, and that, that didn't fit in anywhere Please welcome Robert True Trujillo. Thank you. Thank you. We're so glad you're here. Alas, tis I, Lord of Darkness, <laughs> the Whiskey Warlord. Tell him the first gig. Uh, well, exactly. Actually, the second gig, right? Exactly. There was no advice. That's the. <laughs> No, the advice was the train is rolling, jump on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The train is rolling, jump on board because it's moving fast. And for me, this was like very surreal. It was all happening so quick. I mean, it was just at the pinnacle of anything I ever experienced in my life. The Metallica Podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album. Executive produced by Lex Friedman for Art19 at Amazon Music. Produced by Lars Murray and Dennis Shire for PopCult. Story producers and writers, Mike Mettler and Catherine Turman. Mixing, sound design and editing, Rob Spate. Showrunner and creative direction, Dennis Shire. If you love what you've heard, give us a five-star review and share this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and ask your fellow Metallica fans to subscribe too. I'm Claire Sturgis. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Metallica podcast, Volume 1, The Black Album, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.